If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Um, we'll be highlighting some verses from Genesis chapter 6, chapter 9, and we'll be focusing on a few sections in Genesis 9 through 11. Um, most of the verses should be on the screen or on the YouVersion Live app, but if you're using your Bible, flip back and forth from Genesis chapter 6 to 11. About a month ago, Pastor Seth began to walk us through the covenants, and we'll be continuing to go through the different covenants up until Easter. And two weeks ago, um, he talked about the covenant, God's covenant with Noah and the earth. And last week, Pastor Bob emphasized, emphasized from Genesis the story of Noah and that God abhors sin. God cannot stand in the presence of sin, but he provides deliverance by grace. And so Christians, it is imperative for us to recall God's mercy in sending Jesus Christ to provide for us the way of deliverance from sin and access to God and rejoice in this amazing grace to the world around us. We're going to read several verses for context, starting with Genesis Chapter 6 and verse 5, I'm going to pray and then jump into our passages as we look at man's sin and God's abiding faithfulness. Let's read. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. See, God abhors sin. God must faithfully judge sin, but God provides mercy and deliverance by grace. Noah wasn't without sin. He was made righteous by faith in God. Genesis 8, 1, but God remembered Noah. God is faithful to his people. God doesn't forget his people he doesn't forget about them. He is covenant faithful to his people. God remembered Noah. And then in Genesis chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. God commands his people to go. He doesn't, he doesn't allow us to sit. He commands us to go. Genesis chapter 8, Verse 20, 21, Then Noah built an ark to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Noah 
obeys God's command. He leaves the ark. He goes. And immediately Noah worships. He recalls God's mercy and grace. And he is full of praise. Genesis 9 verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God repeats his command that he had commanded to Adam, to Noah and his sons, in this continual covenant. And in verse 9 through 18, what we saw two weeks ago, we see God's covenant with Noah. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to highlight a couple sections. Verse 8, Then God said to Noah, and his sons with him. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. In verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Verse 16, when the bow is in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, you are the good and righteous king. You are the creator who can't stand before sin, but you're slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Your mercy is for us in sending your Son. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we consider Genesis chapter 6 through 9, the entire flood story is a revelation of God's holy wrath. God is a God of judgment and his holy wrath against sin. But in the covenant, the rainbow is a sign that God is also a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God of patience and a God of peace. God's biting faithfulness is with his people. Psalms 86, 15 reminds us, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We quickly see in the narrative of Genesis That as soon as Noah and his family come off out of the ark, sin came out of the ark with them. The flood didn't drown sin. Sin was riding in the ark in the nature of Noah and his family. And sin survived the flood in them because they were in Adam. It was a new earth, but the same old humanity. And when they walked off the ark, sin walked off the ark with them and in them. But God's abiding faithfulness was already there. Believer, we live in a fallen world where sin is still present. But we also live in a world where God's abiding faithfulness points us to Jesus. As we survey Genesis chapter 9 through 11, I want us to see and look at the sin of Noah, the sin of Ham, the sin of the people. But in looking at these sin, I want us to focus on God's abiding faithfulness to these individual people and the nations. First of all, 
the sin of Noah and God's faithfulness. Noah and his family, they came into this new world, and certainly if there was anything in their mind, it would be that they would do anything and everything to avoid the kind of devastation that they had just witnessed, right? They had a first row seat, front row, to God's holy wrath and judgment against sin. And so as they got off the ark, there must have been this certain hope and eagerness that perhaps that they could get back to where Adam was, that they could rebuild some sort of paradise. And so we quickly learn it couldn't be done. And if it were possible to restrain sin, if there was any reason to do it, if it were possible to live a righteous life on your own, you know, they had every opportunity and reason to want to do that. And so hopefully these people who had been declared righteous by God, that God had spared them from judgment, would have a good shot of pulling it off. But as they walk off the ark, sin walks off the ark with them. And we see quickly in Genesis chapter 9, if you look in verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So we see here, After the fall, in Genesis, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there's two new beginnings. So Adam sins, and we see that there's a new beginning out of the life of Adam in Genesis chapter 4. And then we see here after the flood, a new beginning in Genesis chapter 9. And it's very interesting that both of these two new beginnings, the first stories illustrated are single incidences of a family life to illustrate the ongoing power of sin in our lives fighting against grace. And so we have the struggle between sin and grace in the fallen world. In Genesis chapter 4, this new beginning, is pointed out by Cain murdering his brother Abel. And then here in Genesis chapter 9, we see Noah go, walks off the ark, and we don't know how long, but within a year or two, a short amount of time, Noah sins, which leads to the sin of his son. So what was Noah's sin? It says that he became drunk. This drunkenness, but it has to deal with this loss of proper inhibition. It isn't just that he's tipsy, it wasn't that he was drinking, it's that he was blackout drunk. Noah had lost his dignity. He was made in the image of God and he had lost his dignity. He lost his decency. In his stupor of his drunkenness, he became immodest and behaved himself shamefully. Nakedness, exposure, does not elicit noble, pure thoughts in a fallen world. And we see that here. The, the Bible isn't explicit 
beyond the fact that he was just naked. This implication is that, he, that this was a shameful thing to expose yourself in front of other people when people were nearby. And if you think about it, since Adam's fall, you remember what the first thing Adam and Eve did? They tried to make clothes out of leaves, right? To cover themselves. Clothes cover shame and protect purity. And so Noah here is dishonored. He dishonors himself, and then he's dishonored by his son. And we learn in these short verses that sin exposes us to disgrace, and it becomes the catalyst for other sin. If you skip down to verse 28, It says, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. In this verse, seems kind of like an odd verse, but in this verse we see God's abiding faithfulness. God doesn't just wipe out Noah because of his sin, like he he wiped out the earth. We don't see God as angry or disappointed with Noah. We don't even see God say anything about Noah's sin. The sin is simply recorded as a reminder for us that sin is ever present in us and with us on this earth because humanity is in Adam. Even those declared righteous struggle with sin. Noah was graced with approximately 350 more years of life after this recorded sin. Two things stand out in the text. One at the beginning from what I read and one at the end. The first is sin and the last is death. And isn't that really the point? Sin survived the flood and so did death. And the very first recorded post-flood event in Scripture is the story of sin in Noah's family And then inevitably came death. Noah died. Because even for a believer, the wages of sin is still a physical death. We don't have to fear a spiritual death because of our sins are covered and the death that we should die has already been died by the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. But each of us, because of sin, face a physical death. Romans 5.12 reminds us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, the Bible says, the whole human race sinned and died and death passed to everyone. Everyone who ever lived then bears the mark of Adam's sin in a fallen nature and experiences death, and the judgment of God in the flood didn't drown sin, and it didn't drown death. The heart of man is still deceitful, still desperately wicked today. And so in spite of having lived through the terrifying destruction of the flood, Noah and his family could not restrain themselves from sinning. But... Noah wasn't hopeless because of his sin. Because God's abiding faithfulness is always pointing us to Jesus. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 7. 
It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We clearly see from the story in Genesis that sin still reigned in Noah's body, but God declared Noah righteous by faith in God's redeeming grace. Second, not only the sin of Noah, but I want us to look at the sin of Ham and God's faithfulness. Ham, just like Noah, had had a front row seat to God's holy wrath against sin. Ham, just like Noah, had been declared righteous by God. Ham, just like Noah, had been delivered by grace on the ark. And Ham, just like Noah, was in Adam and therefore in sin. We witness how Noah's sin of drunkenness leads to exposure and modesty and disgrace. But his sin is also a catalyst for Ham's sin. Let's read Genesis 9. We'll read verses 20 through 27. Uh, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Ham was declared righteous. He was a man who God had graciously protected from judgment because he belonged to God. But he does something that is sinful here. And, that, and this is certainly a reminder that righteous people still struggle with sin. What was Ham's sin? He saw the nakedness of Noah, it says. He didn't uncover his nakedness. He saw it. Why was this sin? Ham didn't cause Noah to be naked. Ham didn't cause Noah to get drunk. The idea here is that when he, he saw Noah's nakedness, that the sight pleased him. Ham found some pleasure, some delight in his father's shame, in his father's dishonor. This would be the attitude of a rebellious son. He had rebelled against his father, the person who was supposed to be in command over them, and he found joy in his father's shame and his father's dishonor. It is a further insult that he went outside, it says, and he told his two brothers. So it would be this idea of the sin of ridicule, the sin of gossip. He saw it, he delighted in it, and then he couldn't wait to go tell somebody else about it. But it's clear that at the very heart of Ham's sin was a flagrantly unloving action toward his father. 
It was a flagrant disregard for his father's parental authority and the appropriate honor that should have been shown him. This was a serious breach of what would become later the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And so after Ham's sin, we see Noah's response and God's abiding faithfulness. In verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his son had done to him, he said, cursed be Ham. No, he says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. We're given, and this is quite interesting, the first and only words of Noah recorded in the Bible. We're also given the first prophecy in the Bible given by the lips of man. Noah, the New Testament says, was a preacher of righteousness. He preached for 120 years for the people to repent while he was building an ark. And he must have had a lot to say, but it's interesting that these are the only words that were recorded in the Bible. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Who was Canaan? Canaan was the fourth son of Ham. He wasn't even Ham's eldest son. He was Ham's fourth son. More than likely at this time, Canaan wouldn't have even been born. This is the Canaan of whom the Canaanites descended. If you read the Old Testament, the Canaanites were a plague to the Israelites. Sin, other, worshiping other gods... God's abiding faithfulness and grace are revealed even in this curse. God could have rightly cursed Ham and all his descendants. Isn't that what you expect Noah to say? Ham sins against him and, you know, he wakes up and he says, knee-jerk reaction, cursed be you, Ham. But he doesn't. He singles out the curse upon Canaan and in that we see God's grace. God spares some of the descendants of Ham. Only the Canaanites are cursed. And what we know about the Canaanites are they were a people of unbelievers who consistently rejected God. The only person that God is going to curse is somebody who rejects him. But even those people who reject him, he's slow to anger because If you remember, Jesus has Canaanite blood running through his vein, through Rahab. Even the most wicked, vile people, there's grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. And thirdly, I want us to look at the sin of the people and God's faithfulness. The Bible gives us two individual examples of sin and God's abiding faithfulness in Noah and Ham off the ark. And then in chapter 10 and chapter 11, we're given this example of individual and collective sin and God's abiding faithfulness. In Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, it says, Cush, father Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From the land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. And then if we skip over to Genesis chapter 11, verse number 1, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and the people migrated from the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in, in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the, all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Nimrod here is a specific individual illustration of the deterioration of man and sin very quickly. Ham, Noah's son, it says fathered Cush. So the son of Ham was Cush. The son of Cush was Nimrod. This is Noah's great-grandson. So Noah lived for 350 years after the flood. Noah was presumably still alive. Nimrod would have had first-hand testimony about the wickedness of man, the tremendous flood, and God's abiding faithfulness and grace. He'd probably sat on Noah's lap and heard the stories of the flood. Still, Nimrod leads a worldwide rebellion against the true living God who was creator and judge. Let me point out in verse 9, it says, Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. This is the idea that he was a mighty warrior, a conqueror. He's a mass murderer. He is presumably the first dictator trying to form the first one world government on earth. Even God recognizes this man as a great killer. The people here in the plain of Shinar at the Tower of Babel are the collective example of sin. They don't want to do what God has commanded them to do. They're more than willing to follow this guy if he wants to be in charge. And so he takes control, he takes charge, and they're willing to follow him, whatever he says they're going to do. And so all these people and tribes and nations, they're all idolatrous. They've already abandoned the true and living God. And what you see here is the hopelessness of humanity without God. The warning of the flood that had drowned the entire earth didn't seem to have any effect on them at this point in time. And you see here 
this relentless wickedness of man, even in spite of this firsthand information that God is in fact the righteous judge over the whole earth. So when sinners become concentrated under one power and one place, wickedness abounds. And I want us to notice something in verses 2 and 4. In verse number 2, it says, In a people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They settled there. That's exactly what God told them not to do. He told them to be fruitful, multiply, spread out, and subdue the earth. And so they do exactly what God told them not to do. They said, this is the place to build our one world civilization. We're not going to scatter, as God said. We're going to stay together. We're going to huddle up. We'll have more power together. This is defiant rebellion against God's creation order. And then in verse 4, it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They don't want to weaken their power by dividing their talent, their resources, and their people. They are proud, they are rebellious, they are disobedient. And so are we. How many times do we fail to want to divide our talent, our resources, and our people because we're comfortable where we're at? Notice in verse 5 through 9 that we read, we witness God's response, His response of judgment, and His response that restrains sin in the world. We see God's abiding faithfulness and grace. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and, confu- and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. God knew the sinfulness of the post-flood people was the same as the sinfulness of the pre-flood people. Don't misunderstand. This is not God fearing. He has not somehow all all of a sudden found this adequate rival in the people of Shinar. That somehow Nimrod is going to usurp him as this mighty warrior. This is God as a loving father in his abiding faithfulness as creator and ruler of the world saying that the sin and the habits that they will reap on my created order that I have just purged in the flood of Noah will be exponential unless I do something to restrain it. And so God is not out of control in this passage at all. He is highlighting his abiding faithfulness to restrain sin. These people in the land of Shinar, they wanted meaning in their life. They wanted happiness. They wanted contentment. They wanted satisfaction. But they didn't want to bow the knee to God. 
And how many times do we look for contentment, satisfaction, and meaning in something in some place outside of God and wonder why we're not satisfied, why we're not content, why we're not at rest. Naturally, we are idol makers and idol worshipers and idol builders just like these people in the plain of Shinar. But we are naturally not worshipers of the one true God. If we can find a way to worship anything else than the one true God, we will do it. And so the story of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel is a real-life example to us of Romans 121. Romans 121 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So these people had first-hand knowledge of who God was as the righteous judge, but also of his abiding faithfulness and mercy, and yet they just turned their back on him and said, we're going to go our own way. And so without God's grace, so are we. We know God, but we don't honor him as God unless God's grace is upon us. Lastly, I want us to look at God's faithfulness to the nations through a people. In Genesis chapter 10, verse number 1, it says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then if we skip down to the end of the chapter, verse 32 these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations. From these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So these are all the people that after the Tower of Babel spread all over the, the earth. In between verses 1 and 32, we see listed out here in detail the genealogies of Noah's sons. There's 70 Scholars have done research and there's 70 names of people or people groups or tribes or families listed here to make this a fairly comprehensive early history, to establish a flow of history from Noah to Abraham and from Abraham later on, of course, to the Messiah. And God's abiding faithfulness was for all the nations through Jesus Christ. But in that thought, I want us to go back to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 26 and 27. We looked at the curse to Canaan, but Noah's prophecy didn't end with the curse. It ends with a blessing. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Sin polarizes. There's no neutrality in sin. Either we're for God or we're against God. Either we're blessed by God or cursed by God. We look at Ham's sin earlier and saw how Canaan was cursed. So here is blessing from the Lord, who is the God of Shem. 
and may God enlarge Japheth. He says, blessed be the Lord. This is the same word that Pastor Seth has talked about in the covenants. He uses the name Yahweh, which is God's personal covenant name. And he links God's personal covenant name with Shem, as if to say Shem and God are linked in a redeeming covenant. He and his line are therefore set aside for covenant blessing. Here we see God's call, see God's call a people to himself that will be light and blessing to the nations. Because it was from Shem that Abraham will come, and from him the people of God and the line of redemption fulfilled in Jesus. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 10 These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And we begin through this whole, the rest of chapter 11, to see the family of Shem. But if we skip down to verse 24, it says, When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives, The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no children. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Within Genesis 11, there is a marked contrast. At the beginning of the chapter, we see human rebellion leading to the divine judgment of dispersion. God looks at the people, you're not going to obey me. I'm going to force you to obey me and go be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. That's what we see in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Then we get to the second half of Genesis 11. And on the other hand, we see God's abiding faithfulness and divine grace leading to the call of Abraham, a call which provided hope for the nations and salvation for the lost. Here in the line of Shem, we learn of God's unmerited favor and abiding faithfulness. For even in the line of Shem was not without sin. You remember, Abram came from a line of idolaters, right? Even Abraham started out as an idolater. And so Abram was not loved because Abram was righteous. Abram was made righteous because he was loved by God. So even in the line of Shem, God's unmerited favor rests on a particular line. And that's played out through that line of Terah to Abram. 
But it's interesting that, in, that Shem and Ham are linked here in verse 29, or verse 21. Shem is linked to Japheth. And so we see that Shem and Japheth are linked in this promise and this curse going forward. And so Shem being linked to Japheth, this again forecasts the calling of the Gentiles when the Gentiles will again be linked to the line of Abraham. There is no, no direct fulfillment of this blessing of Japheth to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. There's verses in Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesying Jesus that speak of the coastlands. And some people believe that these people of Japheth are re referred to as the coastlands. But the New Testament says that the promise of the blessing which Noah predicted here in Genesis chapter 9 was fulfilled in the coming of the Gentiles into the people of God. So we Japhethites, we Gentiles, most of us, are brought near to Christ. We're brought by Christ into the line of promise. Galatians chapter 3 Verse 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In verse, down in verse 14 it says, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. In Jesus Christ, God's abiding faithfulness is on display for the entire world to see. A world that is full of sin but they get to see God's faithfulness displayed through the church, through the body of Christ. So as believers, we are in no position to look down at anyone else. Look where we came from. Look where God has brought us. We were once not a people. Now we are God's people. We were once dead in sin. We were idolaters. But God made us alive in Jesus Christ and has called us out of idolatry to serve the one and true living God. Now, we, now God desires for us to go with his message to seek and save that which is lost. Because apart from grace, we were lost. 
You see, God's people are set among the nations as a light and a blessing to to portray Jesus Christ to the nations. God's people can never forget the nations. It's never acceptable for us to say, okay, we're just going to take care of ourselves. We're going to huddle up, we're going to withdraw, and we're going to make sure that we're okay. We're going to just forget the nations out there. But isn't that a great temptation? To not want to worry about the people around us, to want to take care of our own at the cost of the people outside. God wants us to take care of each other to be a light to the nations, that they would see his power and his grace and be drawn to it. We are called to display God's abiding faithfulness to the world around us. Let's pray.